This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. So glad that you can join us. If you are a brand new listener and you've just tuned in to 88.7, either locally or through the internet, For the next hour, we will be taking people's questions, and many times people call in and there's a challenge they're facing in their personal life and they'd like biblical counsel, or maybe there's just a section of Scripture they're struggling with and they want to understand its uh, contextual interpretation so they can make proper application. Well, if we can be of help, we will do our best by God's grace. All you need to do, again, is pick up the phone Locally, again, it's 843-525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is a, uh, TBL for the Bible line, TBL at net. All right, Rick, we'll go ahead and let's get started this morning. All right, Pastor, uh, Sue from Bluffton would like to know what time frame is Ezekiel referring to during his vision of the temple in chapters 40 to 48? Is he seeing the temple during the millennium? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, In fact, uh, we were in Ezekiel 38, a little bit in 39 last Sunday, where we dealt with the battle of Gog and Magog. And in that sermon, I tried to give a broad overview of the book. And so there are basically three sections of the book. The first 32 chapters deal with prophecies in relationship to uh, Israel and the surrounding nations. And it speaks of how God's going to judge for sin, the sin of his own people, and then for those nations who've come against Israel. Then you turn a corner when you come to chapter 33 through the 39th chapter, where he deals with a future restoration and spiritual rebirth of the nation of Israel. Uh, That is, for the most part, in the future, it takes place during the Great Tribulation period. And then you turn to the third section when you come to chapters uh, 40 through 48, and that deals with prophecies concerning the future millennial temple. So, yes, he's looking down the carters of time. Again, it fits with the flow of the book. Uh, Israel is converted. That's not happened. For the most part, the nation has been in unbelief. There's always been believing Jews, but they've been a remnant, even in the first century. He came to his own. His own received him not, John would write, but as many as received him. To them, he gave the right to be called children of God. And yet God did not break his unilateral covenant with the people of Israel. God made an unconditional covenant in relationship Uh, to using Israel for his sovereign purposes. They were the people that God used to bring about the first coming, and they are the people that God will use to bring about the second coming. And so Ezekiel speaks in the middle section of the book about their conversion, how God will take their heart of stone and make it soft like a heart of flesh, 
And he gives that great vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. And again, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, not just within Ezekiel, but within the other prophets, like Jeremiah, like New Testament writers, this is still a future. It happens during the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, Then when Messiah comes back, just as we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's something we pray in what we typically call the Lord's Prayer or some of the model prayer. Uh, that has yet to be fulfilled, but is going to be fulfilled. Jesus will rule and reign on the earth. And of course, tribulation saints who make it through the tribulation, unlike uh, church saints and Old Testament saints uh, and tribulation saints who have been martyred, all those three classes will be in resurrection bodies. But those who survive the tribulation will enter into the millennium in their natural bodies. And right now, by the way, I'm doing a series on biblical prophecy, and we will come to this towards the end of the series. It's going to be at least 15 weeks long. I suppose it could go longer, but that's what I'm planning anyway at this point. Um, in many times when people read of this future millennial temple, they say, I don't get it. Well, you don't have to get it for it to be true. And some say, well, it's heretical. No, the only people who say that are amillennialists who disbelieve so much of God's word as it relates to the future of Israel and God's plan for his people. Uh, Read those chapters, Ezekiel, very, very clearly with great painstaking detail gives uh, the dimensions. He's given instruction like Moses was given for the building of the tabernacle And then for the building of the Solomonic Temple, God is giving specific detail about how this temple is going to be built to say that one is not true, and it was, and we've already seen the tabernacle and two temples, is to say the other is not true. So for taking it less than face value is really to do, I think, a disservice to the Scripture And so Ezekiel himself believed in this future home of the Messiah, Uh, and it will be up on the Temple Mount, but it will be hugely bigger than the current temple or the former temples were. There's no current temple there, but the, the, the temples that have been there. And so it becomes not heresy to believe in a temple in the future that will exist. It's almost a heresy not to believe this because it's part of God's infallible, inerrant word. Not to mention there are three other prophets who join Ezekiel in affirming that there's a future sacrificial system where people get rubbed wrong and it's their own faulty, careless reading of Scripture as they take a text like Hebrews 10 where it says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's true. No one is teaching or has ever taught that even the Old Testament sacrificial system took away sin, and yet the words used by Moses is that those sacrifices would make atonement. And the words used by Ezekiel is that the sacrifices will make atonement. Well, no one believes that there was atonement made for sin, but understand critics who assume that the sacrificial um, system in the future would somehow usurp Christ's final sacrifice, and therefore it is heretical, miss the point that there are many things that were cleansed through the sacrificial system. And there are many things that will be cleansed through the future sacrificial system, not to mention there will be unbelievers on the earth during the reign of the Messiah. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought you had to be a believer to enter the kingdom of God. That's true. Again, the kingdom of God is not just his sovereign reign 
the heavens above, which is taking place. Uh, but there is going to be a future literal kingdom on earth that God spoke of, and he's going to fulfill those prophecies. This same prophet Ezekiel speaks of a river that flows from the Temple Mount all the way to the Dead Sea where they'll be able to fish again. That has never been fulfilled. So what do you do with prophecies like that in these concerning the temple? You either say, well, Israel, because of their disobedience, none of these apply, or you do what most amillennials do and you spiritualize it. Oh, you know, the Dead Sea, it represents man dead in sin and and you know, we're gonna fish in it. And the apostles are called to be fishers of men. And you just you just discombobulate the whole scripture. You basically make it mean whatever you want it to mean. And so there is a coming temple, and it's gonna be instructive, among other things, to unbelievers who are born to the uh, who are children of the tribulation saints who enter the millennial reign in their natural bodies. Those of us in resurrection bodies will be like the angels in that we're not able to have children. We won't be married. We'll be, in that sense, like the angels. We don't become angels, but we're like the angels in that angels neither marry nor are given marriage. Well, tribulation saints will live the full thousand years and if someone were to die at 100, and of course Christ will rule and reign sovereignly because there will be sin in the millennium, but he won't allow it to exist for long. If someone lives only to be 100, I was invited to a 100th birthday party in June. Unfortunately, I won't be able to go on that particular day, but look, it doesn't happen often. I've only been to one 100th birthday party in my life. It just doesn't happen very often. Well, Isaiah said if someone lives to be like 100, they're considered like a child. So most people will live the full 1,000 years, and if you live a 1,000 years, you can have a lot of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and yet each of those will have to make decisions for Christ. Well, one of God's instructive tools will be the temple, just like the tabernacle pictures the whole sacrificial work of Christ on the cross, piece by piece by piece. So will this coming temple. Great question. If you will stick with me, through this prophetic series, I will deal with this in much, 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 much more detail, God willing. All right, let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we want to give a shout out to uh, John Neal, who is the owner of Dixie Lawn, and he is listening to the Bible line today for the first time as they plant flowers around Pembroke High School's uh, sign. And one of our listeners I guess, turn them on to the Bible line. Oh, really? Now, are they a uh, financial supporter? Of... No, 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 they're, no. They're a first-time listener. Well, and, we uh, welcome them. We're yeah. glad you guys are tuning in today, and they're planting flowers at a high school. Huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. that will hopefully make it look a lot nicer. That's great. Well, Indeed. Mike yeah. from Buford says, regarding James five nineteen and 20, can a Christian lose their salvation based off of verse 20? Well, no, the Scripture affirms the eternal security of the believer. So it's impossible to lose your salvation. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns him back turns a sinner from the error of his ways, will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins." So the word salvation is obviously a big word for for James. So we as born-again Christians uh, sadly are much more successful in bringing people to Christ than we are restoring someone when they have fallen. And again, contextually, 
that's really what he is addressing. He has just spoken of a, a person who calls for the elders of the church to lay hands on him, and the promises is that the prayer offered by the elders in faith, assuming that they are able to assess that this person is repentant, that the first person, well, maybe they'll be healed. They might be. No, they will be healed. Why? Because the sickness that they are coming to the elders for are due to a sickness that God brought through divine discipline. And I think sometimes, you know, we uh, just kind of flaunt sin today and we think it's no big deal and that God will just blink at it and overlook at it. But he takes it seriously. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. You know, when you saw Israel disciplined, you saw it on a corporate level. And there were God's people pretty much all in one place. Well, now God's people are scattered all across the world. And so it may not look as dramatic, but it's no less dramatic. Paul said in Galatians, if anyone is caught in a trespass, in a sin, caught up means entangled. They're, They're in some kind of a sin that has, you know, sent them in the wrong direction. He says, you who are spiritual should restore. You don't club him. You restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You look to yourself lest you too be tempted. In other words, you don't go with a spirit of arrogance saying, you know, this could never happen to me. No, it could happen to you. And so in the context, he's dealing with not a loss of salvation, but a a sinner, so to speak, who uh, is a believer, but he has turned from following the Lord, and you are doing everything that you can to turn him from the error of his ways. If any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, that's what we're supposed to do. It's called church discipline, and it comes on three levels, sometimes privately where you alone are aware of the issue because you love your brother, your sister, you confront them. If they don't listen, you take two or three. If they don't listen, you bring it to the church. Rick recently addressed this on a Wednesday night service, and we've exercised as best I could tell. I guesstimated it, but around 50 times since I've been the pastor of Community Bible Church. Most folks don't realize it, but it typically stops at the first or second level. And I think on six occasions, we brought it to the third level. And actually, as I went back and thought about it, Rick, on three occasions, we restored the people. Three different occasions, they were able to be restored. And that's your goal, restoration, restoring the person who strayed from the Lord. But again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so if the Bible teaches the eternal security of the believer, that those whom the Lord saves, he doesn't lose any, that the one who began a good work in us will complete it, then you, whatever you come up with in terms of the context, it can't contradict other clear statements God makes in his word. Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we have Haley from Wisconsin, who is on line one. Good morning, Haley. You're on the Bible line. Hi, Pastor Carl. Hi, Rick. Thank you for taking my call. All right, Haley. Good to hear your voice. Haley, for those who are listening, her and her husband served as missionaries in Alaska, and they are living now in Wisconsin, if I hear it right. Go ahead, Thanks. Haley. Yeah. So, Willie and I have always operated under... Like, if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable, um, and that it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So we approach ministry in that way, um, and we would say that there are 
clear callings of the believer that are discernible in the scriptures, and that beyond that, there is a a call to be in ministry, to use your gifts, but that there's freedom in how we do that, and that the different stages of our life, that will look different, you know, whether we're single or married or have kids. Um, so the thought that I'm trying to take captive is when people say things like, God called me to Africa, or God called me to be a pastor, um, then I'm just wondering, is that adding to God's Word to say something that isn't necessarily discernible clearly in the Scriptures, or is it, you know, that a man has planned in his heart which way he would go, and the Lord directed his steps? Mm. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. It's a great question, and you've already laid some important parameters because people often, you know, speak of a call from God, and the call obviously is not even consistent with Scripture. So your first statement that you start with the Bible, the known will of God is absolutely critical because there are people today, you know, okay, there are women who say, well, God called me to be a pastor. No, he didn't. Oh, but God called me. No, he didn't. How do I know? Because it contradicts the plain teaching of Scripture. So when you make this quote-unquote call, this experience, this voice, this vision uh, that you have from God on the same level of Scripture, then you're really entering into dangerous ground. So Scripture ultimately is our final authority, and every thought needs to be brought captive to the obedience of Christ, and we are under the submission of Scripture. So when you have a verse like, say, 1 Timothy 2.12, a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man, God has laid down some clear parameters. Now, some blow that off today, and they say, well, that just applies to the local church, and we're a parachurch organization or a missions arm of some type, and so women can teach and exercise authority over men and plant churches or teach and mix audiences, et cetera, et cetera. And, well, you know, that's not the case. He's giving some uh, eternal principles. He takes it back to the creative order, and he takes it back to how the fall unfolded because there was a rejection of the creative order. And when we reject the creative order, we get into trouble. Not to mention the verse prior to that says a woman should dress modestly and discreetly. And so someone can't say, well, that only applies to the, to the, uh, to the local church and not the parachurch. It applies to everyone. So God's call has to fit the parameters of Scripture. Now, again, sometimes people have a zeal, but not in accordance with knowledge, as Paul describes his unbelieving Jewish brethren. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. The same could be said of some Christians. And so what they may be confusing sometimes is a call to use a particular gift. Like a woman can have the gift of pastor-teacher or the gift of pastor, but the parameters in which it is used is not over men. It's with women or even with children, which is no small thing. Nobody wants to be bothered with children today. Let's just put them in a daycare center and let's become working moms and not do what God has called us to do in Titus chapter 2. And because that's not important and it doesn't bring, you know, much notoriety in the secular culture that we live in. And we're paying a huge price for ignoring God's plain principles. 
And so sometimes people confuse a a gift or a passion that that gift brings because a spiritual gift will manifest itself, A, with an ability. In other words, if someone has the gift of teaching and no one else has the gift of listening, you probably don't have the gift of teaching. Um, and so there are some wannabe calls that don't reflect what God created that person in Christ to be. And on our spiritual birth, God gives us all a spiritual gift, at least one. I have a spiritual gifts inventory that you can take. It's searchthescriptures.org, and it's 128 questions. I did my doctoral dissertation on spiritual gifts, and uh, I wrote that inventory to help people try to initially discern. Now, if someone's a new Christian or they've been a Christian a long time and they haven't grown, they've remained a babe in Christ, they might not come out with any clear answers. If someone's a babe in Christ, it's like a newborn babe. Is this babe going to be athletic or have great musical skill or, um, you know, an ability to fix things? You don't know until they grow. Um, And there are certain gifts that aren't really discernible until you begin to grow spiritually. And so I make that caveat in taking the spiritual gifts inventory. But people often confuse, too, a spiritual gift with the place it is used. Somebody says, well, he has the gift of working with youth. No, there's no such spiritual gift. Now, there might be the spiritual gift of teaching, and that person might, because they're walking with the Lord, and, and as you delight in the Lord, he gives you the desires of your heart that you might want to aim it towards youth. God's just given you a real burden and passion for that. But there's no gift of working with youth any more than there's a gift of working with old people. So when people use this terminology, God called me to be a missionary to Africa. Well, God may have put it in your heart to be a missionary, and you might have a burden for Africa. And in the process of you know, seeking that route, you may end up in India. (laughs) You know, a man plans his ways, as you quoted from Proverbs, but God directs his steps. But you need to be careful that, you know, my sense is, is that, you know, I I have a real interest in Africa, and so we're going to go in that direction and see how God leads. But to to put it in almost concrete terms and, and, and it for to be mistaken, to be put on the same level as Scripture is a very dangerous thing to do, and it's really what the cults do. Um, and, you know, I had this vision. I had this revelation. I had this calling. And now we do it, obviously, in a more spiritual way, but that's basically what the cults do. They're putting experience over the authority of Scripture, and that's dangerous. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, You know, Pastor, we've done this program for almost 30 years now, and I can't honestly say that I think we've ever had this question. Caitlin from Atlanta, Georgia, wants to know, is it possible for someone with dissociative identity disorder, in other words, a multiple personality disorder, to be saved and go to heaven? What happens if a person has one personality that embraces the gospel and Jesus Christ, but they have another personality or personalities that does not believe in Jesus and trust in Jesus for salvation. How does this work, and what scriptures can be applied to this situation? Can someone with dissociative identity disorder be saved if they have alternate personalities that do not follow Christ? Well, it's a, it's a good question. So let me just put kind of a qualifier here. I'm not saying that the answer I'm going to give 
is a replacement for seeking medical attention in good, sound, medical, probably psychiatric counseling. I say that because there have been situations like this in years past where pastors, like a Grace Community Church, gave such counsel that I'm about to give. It was a different issue, but it was an issue that embraced the need for some medical counsel, and then the person died, and then they sued the church, and it got very, very complicated. So I'm not discounting medical attention, all right? Now, with that said, medical, I mean, multiple personality disorder, as it was originally called, and then they renamed it disassociative identity disorder, where people have these multiple personalities. And what I find interesting is that, at least in the research that I've read over the decades, most of the people who suffer from this were sexually abused as children, it's very, very sad when you have, you know, just little kids being sexually abused. And so they're they're trying to deal with this uninvited shame in their person. You know, there's all kinds of sin, but the worst kind of sin is sexual sin, as Paul highlights in 1 Corinthians 6, because it brings a scar against the body. And so sometimes they create within themselves this other person where they find a sense of protection and comfort and uh, security. Um, With all that said, I think that in more than one situation, those who have multiple personality disorder, whatever term you want to currently use, are not necessarily suffering from a medical disorder or a psychological disorder, but in sometimes demon possession. Now, demon possession is not as common in the Western world, but that's beginning to change because of our willingness to open ourselves up directly to evil and our Judeo-Christian ethic that this nation was once built on and embraced largely by the society at large is now largely being rejected. That is going to lead ultimately to our disaster. But with that said, you know, the scripture says in 1 John 4 that we are to test the spirits, to discern, um, you know, whether they be from God. So it takes some spiritual discernment. Why? Because we're in a spiritual war. We wage war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and evil, dark forces that are work in the invisible realm. Now, it's impossible for a true Christian to be possessed by a demon. Scripture is clear on that. And if you're not sure on that, I have a course on angelology, and I deal with holy angels and fallen angels. But demon possession in this realm shouldn't be discounted. And just because one personality, so to speak, seemingly confesses Jesus as Lord, that may not be a reality. Some years back, Rick got a phone call here at the radio station, and he came down to my office and said, I think I just spoke to someone who is demon-possessed. And they want you to call and speak with them. And I thought, well, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Then when I called the person, I said, yeah, Rick, Rick made the proper assessment. In fact, that person had been in our Wednesday night service before where we had been promoting on the radio this series. We were back in the old building, um, which is now the Fellowship Hall, but she had attended before. And sadly, here's a, here's a case she was sexually abused as a young woman. Uh, she was a professional stripper, and um, but she was clearly demon-possessed. 
And in the course of the conversation I had with her, I actually had some of my older children. I put it on speaker. I wanted them to see the reality. And they still talk about it. This woman who went from one language to another language, to another language, to another language, to another language. And you could tell these were not, you know, charismatic gibberish, but these were real languages spoken perfectly, a few that I knew in terms of I could recognize, um, though I couldn't speak them myself, but just perfect, just perfect. And those were demons within her. And in the course of the conversation, one personality agreed with Christ. And all I could think of was Paul's encounter where he dealt with this woman who affirmed that Jesus was the Holy One of God. And yet the scripture says that she was indeed indeed demon-possessed. And Paul, in fact, didn't seek her out saying, well, here's a demon-possessed woman. I think I want to go exercise the demon. He had, she actually bothered him for several days, and then he had had enough, and he addressed it directly. So these people who go around looking for you know, the opportunity to exercise a demon from a person really aren't matching Paul's example. But every time, it's really interesting, every time, there's no exceptions, in the New Testament, where you hear the voice of a demon speak, they speak truth. You are the Holy One of God. And so a demon, even within a multiple personality individual, could indeed speak truth and supposedly in that personality embrace Christ, where it's really not true. It may be confusing to the family member who loves the person when in reality they're dealing with a much deeper problem. Now, I'm not discounting. God sorts it all out in the end. It may be indeed that your loved one knows the Lord and they've created all these you know, psychological personalities for protection can almost guarantee 99.9% that this was a sexually abused person. Almost guarantee it. I wouldn't be dogmatic and say 100%. But I would say seek medical help, number one, but don't necessarily discount the possibility that this may be an individual who is demon-possessed and needs real spiritual help from some pastors in the area. What, what state are they living? They live in Atlanta, Georgia, this Correct. person is uh-huh. calling. So you might want to go get some help. There's a great church there in Atlanta. It's called Church of the Apostles, some very godly men on their staff, and uh, maybe they could give you some direction to the help that you need. If you don't already have a, a church there, there's a lot of compromise in the city of Atlanta too, some mega churches that just aren't worth anything. Uh, they've just compromised the message, and they've created a mega church from it. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Robin from Estill wrote this morning, at a recent women's conference at CBC, I heard several women say there was a presentation that sounded like CRT. What is the stance of CBC on this issue, and what is the scriptural basis? Well, I don't know what you're specifically referring to in terms of the woman's conference. I know my wife did a four-week series on, on in, during the month of February, um, but I don't think she addressed critical race theory. Uh, with that said, critical race theory has really nothing to do with racism. It, it basically has created this false view of racism to 
put forward a uh, socialistic agenda. And so Black Lives Matter, of course, they just now they it's all been shown. They were just a bunch of ripoff artists and they sold millions of dollars and built houses and all kinds of things with people's money that they thought they were giving to a good cause. And, and uh, it was an evil cause. Now, look, I'm not saying I never have, never would, you know, say that policemen can abuse anyone of any race, white, yellow, black. I don't care. It's wrong to abuse people, periodly. Um, you know, folks today have gone to an extreme because there are folks who want to dismantle this nation. And if you take away the sword from the police, their ability to exercise authority, then you take away a fear from evil. And so one of the safeguards that the Lord has put within a culture is in essence to give the government authority. It might be the army, it might be the police officer to wield the sword. And without that, you know, if you're in a crisis, you don't call a psychologist. You need a police officer if your life is being threatened who potentially can exercise, you know, uh, uh, the kind of authority that he needs. Yes, it's very sad when people are killed unfairly by some racist cop. But look, you know, they represent such a small percentage of the police officers. But what we're doing is we're, we're cutting our feet out from underneath us and we're making it so difficult for a young man to want to become a police officer where, you know, it used to be police officers would come to schools and they were supposed to be your friend. And that's what we learned in grammar school, that the police officer is your friend and he's someone you can trust and go to for help if you need it. And now we've made the police officer our enemy. And so people don't want more and more of these young teenagers anything to do with the police. And they speak, you know, disrespectfully of those who are in authority. A lot of this is underwritten by critical race theory. Now, your question is an armchair question, but I am happy to provide for this caller a magazine that we have made available for the last six months at Community Bible Church as soon as it came out, put out by Pametta Family. Pametta Family is um, a Christian arm that basically tries to defend the Christian worldview in the Columbia um, political system. And they did an excellent um, magazine featuring critical race theory. And if this person will call the church at 843-525-0089, we'll be happy to mail you a copy of that uh, magazine. But am I in favor of critical race theory? No. Will I be misunderstood by what I just said? Um, No, excuse me. Am I in favor of critical race theory? I am not in favor of it. Will I be misunderstood by that statement? Yes, I will, because people don't define terms. They think if you're against critical race theory, then you're a white supremacist and a racist, and nothing could be further from the truth. You're actually a socialist, a communist, an atheist. Usually you're pro-abortion. You're usually pro-homosexual, pro-transgender. And those are the roots of the ladies that led and founded Black Lives Matter. And that was initially on their page on Wikipedia. And then to, oh, we might lose some donations. They took it down, though I copy-pasted the whole page ever before they took it down. Anyway, let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Joan from Royston, Georgia, just called in. 
Her church is a Southern Baptist church, and she just found out that the ministers and most of the members are Calvinists. Could you please give a brief overview of Calvinism, and should she possibly begin looking for another church? Well, it's a good question, and there's a lot of issues going in the Southern Baptist uh, Convention right now. And let me just give a caveat to the previous answer. Uh, We just showed the last two Wednesday nights a two-hour and 12-minute presentation called Enemies Within the Church, and it dealt with critical race theory and the like, and documented people who are teaching critical race theory, quoted them directly. Uh, You actually saw many of them included in the film and speeches and sermons that they gave, and then you really begin to see what, what is really happening. So that might be a great movie for you to purchase. I think it's like $12 online. We bought the license fee to be able to uh, show it publicly. You can actually go, we got permission, and you can go to communitybiblechurch.us and live stream uh, up there the last two Wednesday night services, and you don't even have to buy it. You can watch the whole thing, and you can listen to my comments at the end of each week in terms of some of the people who are dressed in the movie and the like. So, um, Joan, it's a great question, uh, all Calvinists are certainly not to be feared. There are many good godly Calvinists. In Calvinism, there are degrees and there are forms of Calvinism. There's the hyper-Calvinists, there's the mild Calvinists, there's the moderate Calvinists. And some might even uh, classify you as a Calvinist, maybe as a one point, if you believed in the doctrine of eternal security, which means once you're saved, you're safe forever, you can never lose it. That's typically a Southern Baptist distinctive in the Baptist faith and message, and a good one, because it represents biblical truth. What has happened uh, through what has become really the flagship seminary, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, once one of, really the first Southern Baptist seminary, the oldest, that um, went from great roots to becoming very liberal until Al Mohler, in the 1980s, was able to, late 70s, early 80s, turn it around and make it conservative and Bible-believing again. Now they're hitting new trouble there. But with that said, um, it largely has become Calvinistic. And so a lot of, in Calvinism, it's it's a whole realm of theology. Most people, when they hear Calvinism, they think, well, just God choosing some to go to heaven and choosing others to go to hell. And that's within the realm of soteriology. And then, again, there are degrees of Calvinism. You have an R.C. Sproul who said, well, Jesus didn't die for everybody. Jesus died only for the elect, only for those who would believe, and not for the non-elect. So you can't walk up to anyone and say, God loves you, Christ died for you, because his argument would be, you don't know that unless they believe. And so they will often use terminology that Christ died for those who will repent and believe. That would be a five-point Calvinist. Then there are four-point Calvinists who don't hold to the doctrine of limited atonement to a particular redemption, and yet they would hold to the other aspects of Calvinism, total depravity. I hope you believe in the doctrine of total depravity. That would make you a one-point Calvinist. Um, Total depravity says that Man in and of himself is dead in his trespasses and sins, that there's none who seeks God, no, not one. Don't do experiential theology and say, well, when I was five, I seem to be seeking the Lord. 
only because God first sought you, maybe largely in answer to your parents' prayers, but man is totally depraved. He doesn't have within himself anything able in which to redeem himself. T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. I wouldn't agree with unconditional election, again, depending on how you define it. Unconditional election would say basically that God just chose some to be saved. Some would teach double election, that God chose some to be saved, and he made and created others to be exhibitions of in examples of his of his wrath. That's double predestination. So he, again, even with unconditional election, I would say that no, God's spirit seeks after all. When he, the spirit of truth comes, he will indeed go after the world. He'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so um, unconditional election would basically say that no, God unconditionally elects you not based on the decision that he sees you making. He just does it, and that's why you make the decision. They would say you said yes to God only because God first said yes to you. Well, that's a half-truth. God first says yes to you and that he takes the initiative. No one comes to God on his own. No one can become a Christian unless the Father first draws him. Um, But God still gives you a free will. And so they do some mental gymnastics with the word Prognosco in its noun forms as well, which means foreknowledge or prior knowledge. And yet, when you look at four usages outside of, you know, Romans chapter 8, in Romans, you know, you find examples where it just speaks of something that God knew in advance. Now, does do all Christians believe in the doctrine of election? Yes, every Christian does. The question is not, do you believe in the doctrine of election? Because it says he chose us, he elect us, he elected us before the foundations of the world. Um, no, we believe in the doctrine of the of election. The question is, how does God do it? And I would argue that he doesn't do it unconditionally. He does it conditionally based on what God knew you would do in response to his initiative. So you can't take any credit for your salvation. Well, I became a Christian because I started reading apologetic books and I figured out that God existed and that the Bible is true and then I chose Christ. No, even if you ever studied apologetics, it didn't begin with you, it began with God. So T, total depravity, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I reject that. I, irresistible grace. And I would say, well, it is irresistible once you reach a certain point where you respond to the revelation that God has given you, and then it, it is irresistible. And, and what has been started in your heart will be completed. But can a person resist the grace of God? Uh, yes. Um, Stephen stood up in Acts and said, you're just like your fathers, always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're just a bunch of stiff-necked folks. Perseverance of the saints, um, that's P. I believe in it. Uh, so, yes, I believe in total depravity. I, I, I reject unconditional election, as some would call it. Um, I reject limited atonement. I might believe in aspects of irresistible grace. And, yes, I believe in uh, perseverance of the saints. Now, if you want to call me a three-point Calvinist, I suppose you could. Some might call me a two-point Calvinist. Hyper-Calvinist would say you're not a Calvinist at all. Don't even put the label on. But that's just one aspect of Calvinist theology. Uh, Calvin believed in infant baptism. He just took Roman Catholic baptism, put a different spin on it. 
Calvin believed in Roman Catholic eschatology. Just put a different spin on it. So Calvinists today, for the most part, reject that there's any future for Israel. And to me, that's experiential theology. They are doing theology on experience, not on the authority of God's Word. And these are people who would reject experiential theology, but this is how it evolved, is that seemingly God did nothing with Israel for 1,900 years. And so during the time of the Reformation, the Catholic Church, who said, we're the new Israel, the Protestant reformers like Calvin said, you're right, but it's not you, the Roman Catholic Church, it's born-again believers, but God is done with Israel. And so Calvin said some awful things about Israel, as did Luther, as did Augustine, who really planted the roots, and he had predecessors who, who helped control some of, I think, direct some of his thinking. So, um, you know, with all that said, some of my Calvinist brothers are, you know, I mean, they're great in other issues, and they're leading the charge, and, <coughs> excuse me, the infallibility of Scripture. They're leading the charge on gender issues. They're leading the charge on women not being pastors and so forth. And so they're not to be hated or, you know, and, and it might be that that is going to be the best church you're going to find in your community. So you find the strongest church you can and get behind it, and you might agree to disagree on some issues. So good question. Let's go to the next. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Patricia O. writes, Do you believe in the laying on of hands? Well, um, depends what you mean by that. If you mean, uh, do I believe in these guys who travel the country who call themselves faith healers and they lay hands on you like a Kenneth Copeland or a Benny Hinn and others and just false teachers. These guys are just false teachers. And unless they repent, you will never see them in heaven. But again, folks today have zero discernment over some of the things they do and they lay hands and they have all these fake healings. That's what they are. Most of them are all just fake healings. And maybe if there's a true legitimate one, it's a satanic healing. And because Satan can do miracles too, in order to propagate the false teaching, the prosperity theology and other evil aspects. Um, Benny Hen's nephew who worked with him for 10 years was later converted and has exposed his uncle in all the evil practices that he has been propagating. But if you are asking me, do you believe in laying on of hands as James addresses it? I would say yes. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He must. He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, not the elder of the churches, not the elders of the churches, but the elders, plural, of the church, singular. And so some of our, going back to our prior question, Calvinist brothers are moving Southern Baptist churches to a plurality of elders. That aspect is good. That's a good thing they're doing because there's not a single elder form of government in the New Testament, but a plurality of elders who rule. It's more like federalism in the United States government. We have elected officials, but then the elected officials speak on our behalf. Well, the elders of the church lead the church. And then the question becomes, well, what role does the congregation have? That's a whole other issue. So you call for the elders of the church. They are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered or 
in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if, and it's a kind of conditional statement, meaning he has, if he has committed sin, they'll be forgiven him. So contextually, he's dealing with a person in the church who is calling the elders, not for the faith healer, not for the traveling evangelist. This is a local church expression. He's calling for the elders of the church because why? The elders initially dealt with him, and he's under church discipline, and there's some church discipline that brings sickness. Many among you are weak and sick and some die, and some are experiencing physical problems, and it's because they're rebelling against God's way and God's people and sometimes God's leaders in the church. And now they've developed sickness that is actually related to their own sin, and yet they'll, they'll, they'll point the finger at other people when they need to do some serious heart examination. Now, please understand, I'm not saying all sickness is, is from, you know, church discipline. Most of the sickness we probably experience in this life is due to the fact that we live in a fallen world. But some is due to our own rebellion. And God is disciplining us, and sometimes that discipline comes through the elders of the church. So this individual is going back to the elders, and if the elders are able to discern that, uh, no, this is one someone we should pray for because their repentance is real. There are some people that the Bible says you don't make any prayer for them, First John. Uh, but there are some that we should pray for because you see, no, this is real, and God wants us to pray, and then you can expect the person to be restored. Now, does that have any other application? It could. So sometimes in humility, people come and say, hey, would you, um, would you and the elders pray for me? I have a very serious sickness, and it looks really bad. And we will. In fact, we just prayed for a brother like three months ago between services on a Sunday morning. He just recently came up to me and said, I, I'm just, I just please thank God, thank the elders that they prayed. God has done just a miracle and he is turning around my health. And now, you know, he came to us not with some unconfessed, unrepentant sin in his life. He just came in humility looking for help. But the primary application contextually is someone who is sick due to God's divine discipline. Now, that's the short answer. I spend one hour on it. If you will go to search the scriptures, .org, type in, don't type in STS, type in search the scriptures at the app store, download the phone app, and I preach through the whole book of James, and there's an hour-long message on that. And by the way, I think it was the first caller asked about James 5.20. He can listen to a detailed uh, answer from that sermon as well. Let's go to the next question. Okay, Michelle from Charlotte, North Carolina, would like to say the following. Dr. Berge, if possible, I'd love to hear your answer as well as a perspective from Audrey. I have been married to my husband for almost 11 years. When we married, neither of us, neither of us was saved. Any kind of Christian faith was not even on our radar. That changed for me about three years ago when the Lord saved me from dark pits of anxiety. My husband, while he hasn't stood in my way, doesn't share my beliefs. Is there anything I can do to help him see the truth of the Bible other than praying for him and being a Christian wife? Well, the fact that you are praying for him because you probably love him more than anyone else in the world next to God himself, maybe his parents, if they're alive, um, that's a great thing because you have a high motivation 
to intercede at the throne of grace. And so you're in a mixed marriage, not out of disobedience, but because after you were married, uh, you were later converted. And so through that conversion, you know, God gives us some very pointed instruction in 1 Peter 3 in the same way, in the same way as what? In the same way as it goes back to chapter 2 and verse uh, 18, servants who are submissive to their masters, not just those who are good and Gentile and fair, but even those who are unreasonable because that's what finds favor with God. And so you lived in a world where there are 60 million slaves and God tells the believers, look, you know, you need to be submissive to that master, not just if he's a great guy, but even if he's a a, a jerk. Uh, why? Because that finds favor with the Lord. What credit is there if when you sin and you're harshly treated, you endure it with patience? There's no credit at all because... Um, uh, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, that finds favor with God. And so then he looks at Christ, our example. We've been called for this purpose because that's what Jesus did. He left us an example for you to follow in his steps. I mean, you talk about someone who is perfect. He's the only perfect person who's ever walked on the earth. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. Yet while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He entrusted himself to God who judges righteously. So he submitted to those who had no reason in the world to mistreat him. If there was any individual ever in the history of humanity for which someone had absolutely no reason at all to mistreat someone, where you could say that dogmatically, authoritatively, it would be the Lord Jesus because he was perfect. And yet he submitted to the Father's will. He bore our sins in his own body in the Christ. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your husbands. So that if he, even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one. And the word here is an evangelist, evangelistic one. So he's dealing really with a mixed marriage, though you could apply it in other realms. One without a word by the behavior of your wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So he's saying, look, the way you're going to win him is first and foremost, not by so much what you say. He's not discounting that you have to give him the gospel or someone does because no one can be saved apart from the imperishable seed, which is the word of God. But he's saying you're not going to nag him. You're not going to preach him into the kingdom of God. You're going to get his attention first by what you do, how you live. And so he says, ladies, focus not just on the outside, focus on the inside. Don't let your adornment be merely external, but let it be internal. I would say to this caller, this is a great question. Download the app if you don't have it. Search the scriptures.org at the app store. Click on First Peter. Listen to this message on First Peter 3. I give an hour-long message on what a wife can do if she has an unbelieving husband. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us today on The Bible Line. God bless you as you walk with Jesus Christ. 